Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Reports say that Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer plans to retire by summer. President Biden would be able to nominate a new justice and he's promised the person would be a black woman. The U.S. gives a formal response to Russia's demands. This as Russia warns of potential retaliation and U.S. citizens in Ukraine are asked to leave. After two NYPD officers were shot and killed in the line of duty, demonstrators rally in front of the Manhattan District Attorney's office. Many of them blame the DA's policies for the deaths. What comes after the Omicron variant? Some experts say it's unlikely future variants would be any worse than Omicron. The WHO has a different take. Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer is reportedly planning to retire. Anonymous sources told numerous media outlets that Breyer will step down this summer. This means that President Biden will appoint a Supreme Court justice for the first time. NTD's Allison Lee has the details. Several unnamed sources told Fox News, NBC, the Associated Press and other outlets on Wednesday that Justice Stephen Breyer will step down. One source said that he will step down toward the end of the current Supreme Court term this summer. 83-year-old Breyer is currently the oldest Supreme Court justice. Appointed by President Bill Clinton in 1994, he's been on the bench for 27 years. Some Democrats have been calling for him to step down during President Biden's term. Does it irk you? that you still get these kinds of questions from liberal Democrats. From the start, they were asking whether you were going to be liberal enough. And from the and right here we are, after 27 years, there are expectations about whether you would want to retire to help out Joe Biden. And does it irk me? I'll tell you. <laughs> the truth, I think, is there is always your, you know, you can always hope for your more mature self, which is there sometimes. The White House is refusing to comment on the news. Press Secretary Jen Psaki said on Twitter, we have no additional details or information to share. Biden is also refusing to comment. Every justice has the right and opportunity to decide what he or she is going to do and announce it on their own. There has been no announcement from Justice Breyer. Let him make whatever statement he's going to make, and I'll be happy to talk about it later. Breyer's departure means a Democratic president gets to nominate a new justice for the first time since 2010. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says Biden's nominee will, quote, receive a prompt hearing in the Senate Judiciary Committee and be considered and confirmed by the full United States Senate with all deliberate speed. During the 2020 presidential campaign, Biden made it clear what type of justice he's looking to nominate. I committed that if I'm elected president, have an opportunity to appoint someone to the courts, will be a, I'll appoint the first black woman to the courts. It's required that they have representation now. It's long overdue. Potential nominees are California Supreme Court Justice Leandra Kruger, U.S. Circuit Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson, civil rights lawyer Sharon Ifill, and U.S. District Judge Michelle Childs. Justice Breyer hasn't officially announced his retirement yet. Ellison Lee, NTD News. And President Biden hasn't released a list of potential Supreme Court nominees yet, but many are already speculating about who he might pick and whether the Senate will have any trouble approving the nominee. NTD Steve Lance talked to attorney and former Texas State Representative Rick Green to get some perspective. Whoever President Biden nominates to the Supreme Court will have to pass through the Senate. 
Democrats only hold a slim majority there, with Vice President Kamala Harris being the tiebreaker. And division within the Democratic Party has stalled some major bills recently. Do you think they'll be able to come to terms on a nominee and eventually even get him confirmed? This might be the one thing that can unite them. They realize what's at stake for them. It really does put a lot of power in the hands of, of Manchin and Simonis since, they, Simonis since they've been the ones to be able to um, you know, say yay or nay to some of the more radical uh, uh, legislation uh, that the president has tried to push through. I think they will probably hold, but it will influence you know, how far left this, this next justice will be. And hopefully that's a good thing and we can end up with someone that's closer to the middle. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said on Wednesday that Biden will stand by his commitment to nominate a black woman. What type of judge do you see Biden um, eventually choosing? I hope it's not uh, what um, we're already hearing from some senators, that they want to have a justice based on the opposite of MLK standard. They want someone based on the color of their skin rather than the content of their character, or in this case, their qualifications to serve on the court. But you know there's going to be a lot of Democrats pushing for that. I would expect someone that, that does meet kind of more of that moderate uh, definition so that they can get everybody together. But you just you kind of put your finger on it. The left-wing part of the party uh, has not been willing to accept anything that's even close to moderate right now. And so he may have to go pure leftist on this appointee to try to keep everybody together. But then I think that makes it hard for him to get all 50 votes in the Senate that he needs. Green says Breyer's retirement comes at a great time for Biden. The president has the opportunity to rally the Democrats together. If you look at the makeup of the court and you look at the, the timeline and you look at the polling on the, on the election in 2022, I think he knows, uh, you know, he doesn't want to be hated uh, for giving up another seat uh, potentially to not necessarily con a conservative seat. But if it was after 2022, you know, the Republicans might be able to at least force a moderate appointment. Biden and the White House both say they will not comment on Breyer's retirement until the justice announces it himself. Steve Lance, NTD News. A pro-police rally was held in New York City today in support of the two NYPD officers who were recently killed in the line of duty. Organizational leaders and several candidates for office spoke at the event, calling on Manhattan's district attorney to make some changes. NTD's Jason Perry has a story. The NYPD continues to mourn the loss of officers Wilbert Mora and Jason Rivera. The two were responding to a domestic disturbance call when a gunman opened fire on them in a narrow hallway. Both succumbed to their injuries. The Bronx County Conservative Party held a rally in support of the fallen police officers in front of the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. New York gubernatorial candidate Andrew Giuliani called on Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg to start prosecuting suspects for resisting arrest. You're going to put our cops on the line like that when every single day they come, they kiss their kids goodbye, and they don't know if they're going to come back. And it is our duty to make sure that we stand with them. It is our duty to make sure that we take a look at bail reform, and we don't tweak a bail reform. I don't want to hear about tweaking bail reform. We throw that document in the garbage, because that, that, ladies and gentlemen, is one of the worst laws in New York State history. Madeline Brame has personally felt the effects of bail reform after her son was murdered in 2018. One of the alleged killers had her bail reduced from $750,000 to $12,000. She currently walks the streets of Harlem this day 
in your community, in my community, free to come and go as she pleases, works at home with her family, spends Christmas with her children. I, when I spoke to one of the detectives, I, I asked, you know, what kind of guys were Officers Mora and Officers Rivera, Officer Rivera. And he said they were two of the best kids I've ever seen come on the job. We reached out to the Manhattan DA's office, but did not hear back before airtime. We need to make sure that we end up prosecuting our criminals, especially when they commit violent crimes. Otherwise, unfortunately, we're going to have more and more funerals at St. Pat's. And I don't, I don't want to continue to see our officers being laid to rest like this. Officer Wilbert Mora was 27 years old, and Officer Jason Rivera was 22 years old. Jason Perry, NCD News, New York. Today, the search for survivors continues four days after a suspected human smuggling boat capsized in a storm. The Coast Guard battling time and currents as its planes and ships comb the coast of Florida looking for the 38 people still missing. NTD's Chenny Wu brings us more. The Coast Guard was alerted Tuesday after a man was rescued off an almost submerged boat near the coast of Miami. The survivor uh, Saturday evening with 39 other people on board the vessel. The vessel capsized uh, shortly after they departed due to severe weather in the area. Captain Joanne Burdian added that no one aboard was wearing a life jacket. By Wednesday morning, the Coast Guard had found at least one dead body in the water after scanning a large area about the size of New Jersey. And with every passing moment, the chances of survival for the dozens of others grow dimmer. The single known survivor has been taken into custody by Homeland Security. His name and nationality have not been released. The boat was reportedly used for human smuggling. Migrants from around the world have long used the Bahamas as a stepping stone to reach the United States. For the most part, these migrants are from Haiti and Cuba. The vessels are often dangerously overloaded and prone to capsizing. Homeland Security Investigations has launched a criminal probe. Anthony Salisbury, special agent in charge of the agency's Miami office, said, you're dealing with criminal organizations that have no value for human life or safety. It's really victimizing the migrants. It's just about the money. Over the years, human smuggling operations have resulted in thousands of deaths. Chenny Wu, NTD News. Alaska has chosen to embrace a unique new system in this year's election. It scraps party primaries and uses ranked choice voting in the general election. Let's take a look at how it works. For the first time, Alaska's elections will be held under a new voter-backed system, regardless of party affiliation. The author of Election Changes explained how the system works. Um, first of all, it repealed Alaska's closed political primaries where we had a Democratic and a Republican primary and created one primary election where all the candidates appear and every voter gets that ballot. You choose your favorite, and then the top four finishers for each office move on to the general election. And then the general election, the election is conducted via what we call ranked choice voting. This new system was narrowly approved by voters in 2020. The Alaskan Supreme Court upheld the reform last week, meaning it will be in place for this year's primary and general elections. Under the system, voters choose candidates without partisanship. It's to get that moderate candidate, um, prevent the parties from being kind of an artificial gatekeeper to our choices, and then the hope is you get more done, right? The system is an experiment, and Alaska is the first state to take it on. Supporters hope it will help ease partisan rivalries and encourage civility and cooperation among elected officials. 
thing, I think, from our perspective, um, ranked voting uh, as, a, as an important piece of that reform is, uh, you know, this uh, change that's, I think, the fastest growing reform in the country working uh, in, in both red and blue states and I think does great things for voters. But opponents say the reform could dilute the power of political parties or swamp minor party candidates. Other critics wonder whether the system will work as supporters intend. Big parts of the Biden agenda are stalled in Congress. Democrat leadership has now turned its attention to a new goal that's likely to gain bipartisan support, enhancing competition in the global economy, especially competition with China. NTD's Melina Weiskopf has more. The White House has seen one setback after another, and Biden is ready for a big win with the new American Competition Act. The House just this week just unveiled their version of a bill that was already passed in the Senate to invest in American innovation, technology, and manufacturing. It's also meant to reduce our dependence on China. It's been on the launch pad for more than a year. Uh, we need to get moving if we're serious about competing with China. The nearly 3,000-page bill invests in strengthening supply chain in American manufacturing, scientific research and technology, securing global competitiveness, and includes the Chips for America Act, a key piece to address the shortage of semiconductors used in everything from smartphones to cars. We're going to stamp everything we can made in America, especially these computer chips. The House's bill also includes $3 billion for solar manufacturing, a key investment to reduce dependence on China's green energy market as the Biden administration plans to move toward renewable energy. The Senate passed their version of the bill over the summer with bipartisan support, but some Republicans were disappointed that the final version didn't include action to further prevent intellectual property theft by Chinese Communist Party spies. What if a year from now we find out, and you're going to read an article two years from now, whatever, that says the Chinese have stolen a quarter, 25, 30 percent of the IP developed by the money that's been put forward in the bill that was passed? Then we're all going to feel pretty stupid around here. Rubio this week sent a fiery statement that the DOJ has not done enough. Rubio pointed to a recent case with Professor Gong Chin at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Chin failed to disclose his ties to the Chinese Communist Party and was taken to court, but the DOJ dropped Chin's case last week. And some, from what I've seen in this bill, it doesn't take action to stop those CCP officials from, further, from continuing to steal that intellectual property theft. Do you think that's a problem if it goes unaddressed? Chinese espionage is a massive problem. Um, I'm not sure this bill is the place to address it. Uh, there are efforts in the FBI and Department of Justice to go after the Chinese. Those probably need to be expanded. But um, Chinese espionage, IP theft, is different from supporting our own science and technology base. It's expected that some version of this bill will be passed through Congress and signed into law by President Biden. But the question now is, will Senate Republicans put up a fight if they don't get to add some amendments, such as action to protect against intellectual property theft? Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Health experts are speculating whether we'll deal with a variant more severe than Omicron. Some are saying the virus has essentially mutated its way into a weak and nearly inescapable form. But the World Health Organization has a different take. NTD's Miguel Moreno has that story. Since the start of the pandemic, we've endured five variants of the CCP virus. Some health experts are now theorizing that we'll no longer deal with variants that could make us sicker than Omicron can. 
the World Health Organization, known as the WHO, pushed back on a similar theory on Thursday, saying we don't know whether the next variant will be milder. There is no guarantee of that. We hope that that is the case, but there is no guarantee of that, and we can't bank on it. But they do expect the next one to be more infectious. Yale professor of epidemiology Harvey Risch has a positive outlook, saying it's likely that we won't deal with a variant that makes us sicker than Omicron can for two reasons. Firstly, the highly infectious but relatively mild Omicron variant is pushing out the Delta variant. Secondly, the Omicron has such a large number of mutations, 50 or more mutations, and it's already mutated into some major uh, progeny strains and a whole pile of little minor variants off of Omicron. And none of them are seem to be doing anything different than Omicron itself, that it seems very unlikely that Omicron would unmutate, it would mutate to unmutate some of its mutations to, to revert to being more uh, severe illness. There's no reason that it has any evolutionary pressure to do that. Dr. Anthony Fauci has said that this variant could help push the U.S. into the endemic phase, a phase in which the virus won't disrupt society. Professor Risch says that in his view, the Omicron variant is flu-like, which means we've already reached a point that warrants a return to the pre-pandemic way of life. We don't uh, declare a state of emergency over the flu, and therefore there's no longer any grounds to maintain the state of emergency. I've written that in a couple articles a couple places that it's time to end the state of emergency because a state of emergency where we lose rights, you know, human rights in support of maintaining the health of our population has to be continuously justified in order to, to do that. And we've gotten to the point where there's no justification anymore with the flu-like illness that Omicron is. So it's time to end that and get back to normal. The WHO's pandemic public health emergency declaration is still in effect, and the director has said that the crisis is nowhere near over. Miguel Moreno, NTD News. And coming up, seven intriguing arrests in San Jose. Four people are being charged for a 2020 mass shooting, and the other three were found to be connected to a drug operation. And in San Francisco, we meet the world's oldest aquarium fish which might even be older than your grandparents. That and more when we return here on NTD News. California police have arrested four suspects of an October 2020 mass shooting outside a restaurant in San Jose. And the investigations and a series of police raids uncovered three additional suspects tied to a drug sales operation. Here are the details. San Jose police announced the arrest of a total of seven suspects on Wednesday. Four were found to be connected to an October 2020 mass shooting outside a San Jose restaurant, and three were arrested on drug charges. Throughout the investigation, we identified suspects and we realized that our investigation was overlapping with the narcotics investigation that was being conducted by the DEA. The homicide charges stem from two shooting deaths on October 16, 2020 at the Nuevo Vallarta restaurant in San Jose. Six men were injured and two men lost their lives in the shooting. Police identified the four homicide suspects who are all San Jose residents. The victims were not identified and the motive was unclear. 
The two homicides were the 34th and 35th homicides of 2020. There were additional suspects that were also arrested. There was a large amount of narcotics seized, $175,000 in cash and various firearms. Uh, that part of the investigation is being handled uh, by the DEA. During the investigation, authorities say that Raymond Arajo was allegedly involved in selling drugs. The San Jose Police and the Federal Drug Enforcement Administration executed six search warrants throughout the city. The sweep uncovered one gallon of liquid methamphetamine, six pounds of cocaine, nearly four pounds of heroin, 30 fentanyl pills, one handgun, and one rifle. All suspects were booked into the Santa Clara County Main Jail. And staying in California, a suspect wanted for allegedly stabbing three people was found dead on a freeway after being hit by a truck shortly after the incident. NTD's Jason Blair has the latest. In a tragic series of events, a man in San Jose, California, allegedly stabbed three people. Just a few hours later, he walked onto a freeway where he was struck by an oncoming truck and died. When officers arrived, a very chaotic scene, multiple, uh, three adult stabbing victims. According to police, the suspect and the victims all lived together in the same residence where the incident happened. All three stabbing victims were taken to the hospital with non-life-threatening injuries. The investigation is still ongoing. We don't know what precipitated or, or what motivated this individual to, to commit these stabbings. According to Sergeant Camarillo, the suspect's car was found by the Sheriff's Department abandoned on the west side of San Jose, which is not far from where he was seen walking onto the freeway. Witnesses told KTVU that the suspect seemed like he was intentionally trying to get hit by a vehicle. Shortly after locating the abandoned vehicle, the California Highway Patrol notified the San Jose police of a pedestrian-involved crash. The police were able to identify and confirm that the pedestrian involved in the crash was the suspect wanted in the stabbings. Jason Blair, NTD News, California. Authorities say the cause of the fire that ignited in Big Sur was hot embers from a pile-burning operation. According to CAL FIRE, high winds blew the hot embers from a pile-burning operation onto nearway, nearby vegetation, which ignited the fire. Pile-burning is often conducted by forest services to remove woody debris. The Colorado fire started in the Palo Colorado Canyon, north of the Bixby Creek Bridge, on Friday night. It has burned 700 acres and is 55% contained. Highway 1 is closed from Garapada Creek to Point Sur. Evacuation orders are still in place. And the California Academy of Sciences is home to what is likely to be the world's oldest aquarium fish. Researchers think she's around 90 years old. NTD's Chenny Wu brings us that story. Methuselah is the oldest person mentioned in the Bible, said to have lived to be 969 years old. Though not quite as old, a creature named after the biblical character in a San Francisco museum is believed to be the oldest living aquarium fish in the world. Methuselah is a four-foot-long Australian lungfish, weighing around 40 pounds. They're really, really ancient fish, so they literally have lungs as well as gills. So it's thought that they were the in-between between fish and amphibians. Methuselah was already believed to be around five or six years old when it was brought to the California Academy of Sciences from Australia in 1938. So biologists now estimate Methuselah to be 90. We had a nice little experiment where we moved her to a larger tank because people were concerned that there wasn't enough room in this habitat for her. 
uh, but she ended up not liking the larger tank, and then we decided to move her back here, where she now no longer has roommates, which she appreciates as well. So she's, she, you might consider her a grumpy old woman, perhaps. <laughs> The Australian lungfish is now a threatened species and can no longer be exported from Australian waters. So biologists at the academy say it's unlikely they'll get a replacement once Methuselah passes away. In the meantime, they say they'll continue giving her the best care and her favorite treats, fresh figs and belly rubs. Chenny Wu, NTD News. Longtime Boston Red Sox slugger David Ortiz was elected to baseball's Hall of Fame yesterday his first time on the ballot. Yet his inclusion, combined with the exclusions of fellow All-Stars Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens, has brought into question the integrity of the voting. NTD's Dave Martin has more. David Ortiz is more than worthy of his Hall of Fame call. No one is questioning that. The 10-time All-Star was perhaps the greatest designated hitter of all time, and he was at his best in the postseason, where his clutch hitting propelled the Red Sox to three World Series titles. For all that, his immense popularity among fans and the media was well-deserved. Ortiz never tested positive for performance-enhancing drugs in any of his 13 seasons in which baseball had formal drug testing. But his inclusion of the roughly 100 players to test positive for an unknown type of performance-enhancing drug back in 2003, as reported by the New York Times six years later, complicates the voting. Meanwhile, longtime stars Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens were both shut out of the voting after failing on their 10th tries. Both players have been suspected of performance-enhancing drug use, though neither player ever tested positive by Major League Baseball. And both players have overwhelming Hall of Fame resumes. Bonds is baseball's all-time home run leader at 762, and he won a record seven MVPs. Clemens' 354 wins are ninth all-time, and his seven Cy Young awards are second to no one. Yet neither player was as universally as popular as the larger-than-life Ortiz, whose fame skyrocketed after back-to-back game-winning hits in the 2004 playoffs against the Yankees. Their exclusion has threatened to turn the voting into something it should never be, a popularity contest. Dave Martin, NTD News, New York. Coming up, the U.S. Navy is working to retrieve a $100 million American fighter jet which fell into the South China Sea. Reporters are asking the Navy about concerns that China might get it before the U.S. does. And China's intrusive pandemic control measures are worrying some U.S. diplomats. They're requesting permission to leave China just 10 days ahead of the Beijing Winter Olympics. That and more here on NTD News. U.S. is trying to recover its most advanced warplane from the South China Sea. It fell into the waters after a landing mishap. Meanwhile, in China, U.S. diplomats want to leave due to the country's strict COVID-19 restrictions. NTD's Tiffany Meyer has the details. The U.S. is trying to haul a $100 million American warplane from the depths of the South China Sea. The aircraft is a F-35 fighter jet, the Navy's most advanced jet. It fell into the disputed waters after a landing mishap during routine flight operations. That's while it was attempting to land on the U.S.'s Carl Vinson aircraft carrier. The U.S. Navy confirmed the aircraft went under after it made impact with the carrier's flight deck.
A statement from the Navy says seven sailors were injured. The pilot ejected from the aircraft and was taken to safety in a U.S. military helicopter. The damage to the aircraft carrier is superficial, and all equipment needed for flight operations still functions. Though the Navy has not revealed where in the South China Sea the crash took place, China claims about 90 percent of the South China Sea, though the U.S. and other nations dispute those claims. The U.S. Navy was also asked about an unsourced media report. The report suggested there were fears that China could also try to retrieve the crashed aircraft. The fleet spokesperson replied that the Navy cannot speculate on China's intentions. U.S. diplomatic staff inside China are making a request to the State Department to let them and their families leave the country. CNN cited sources familiar with the matter, saying the request for an authorized departure was made amid growing concerns about China's strict pandemic containment measures. The term authorized departure doesn't refer to a formal order. Instead, it gives diplomats, their families and their staff the option to stay out of China until they feel it's safe to return. Sources said this request has not yet been approved. Responding to NTD's request for comment, the State Department said the status of the U.S. mission in China has not changed. A spokesperson also added that any potential changes will be based on the health, safety and security of State Department employees and their family members. On the other hand, Chinese state-controlled media have denounced the U.S. request. One outlet, the Global Times newspaper, called it a dirty trick. The request was reportedly driven by fear of tightening pandemic protocols in recent months, including some measures that could separate parents and children. Currently, the U.S. diplomatic mission in China has an agreement with China's foreign ministry that parents will remain with their children in case of quarantine. But U.S. diplomats worry that China's health agency could potentially reverse that deal. And the latest on the Ukraine crisis. The U.S. has given a response to Russia's demands, but it remains unclear what's coming next. This as Americans in Ukraine are now urged to leave. Here are the details. It sets out a serious diplomatic path forward should Russia choose it. The U.S. has given Russia a formal response to its demands. Both countries confirmed Wednesday that the American ambassador to Moscow hand-delivered the written U.S. response to the Russian foreign ministry in Moscow. But on whether there's been any compromise... Uh, NATO's door is open, remains open, uh, and uh, that is our commitment. Blinken said the letter repeats what the U.S. has been saying. It will not stop NATO from inviting Ukraine to join as Russia demanded. It remains up to Russia to decide how to respond. We're ready either way. Russia said it will consider what steps to take after getting the U.S. response, though warning on the same day. If there's no constructive answer and if the West continues its aggressive course, Moscow, as the president has repeatedly said, will take the necessary retaliatory measures. NATO suggested Wednesday a political solution is possible. Uh, but then, of course, Russia has to engage in good faith. Meanwhile, the U.S. Deputy Secretary of State is cautioning that Putin might use force in the coming weeks, if not sooner. We certainly see uh, every indication uh, that he is going to use military force uh, sometime, uh, perhaps now and uh, middle of February. The U.S. Embassy in Ukraine is urging all Americans there to leave, saying the situation can deteriorate with little notice. 
NATO, or the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, plays an important part in the Russia-Ukraine conflict. We look at why NATO members are sending arms to Ukraine and why Russian President Vladimir Putin doesn't trust NATO. NTD's Joy Felix has more. NATO was formed in 1949 by 12 countries, with the UK, US, Canada and France as its founding members. Its aim was originally to counter the threat of post-war Russian expansion in Europe. Soviet Russia formed its own military alliance of Eastern European communist countries called the Warsaw Pact. Following the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, many members of the Warsaw Pact joined NATO, including Poland, Czech Republic and Lithuania. Now NATO has 30 members. Ukraine declared independence from the Soviet Union in 1991. It is not a NATO member, but it is a partner country. This means there's an understanding it may be allowed to join the alliance sometime in the future. In recent years, Ukraine has moved towards closer ties with the European Union. A popular uprising in February 2014 forced out Moscow's leaning president, Viktor Yanukovych. Then Russia annexed the strategically important Crimean Peninsula in early March. President Putin wants Ukraine to remain inside Russia's sphere of influence, and one of his key demands is for a guarantee that Ukraine will never be admitted to NATO. But NATO will not promise so, saying that such matters are decisions for Kiev and NATO members. Russian President Vladimir Putin says that U.S. broke a guarantee it made in 1990 that NATO would not expand eastwards. He also says that Western countries are using NATO to surround Russia. NATO rejects these claims and says only a small number of its member states share borders with Russia. Joy Felix, NTD News. And over to the UK, where British Prime Minister Boris Johnson today brushed away calls to resign and refused to answer questions about downing street parties during lockdown. That's as the country anticipates the release of an official report into those alleged parties. The report is compiled by senior civil servant Sue Gray, who oversees the government's ethics inquiries. NTD's Jane Werrell brings us more from Westminster. Boris Johnson was on bullish form at Prime Minister's questions, dismissing calls to resign. I have been repeatedly assured since these allegations emerged there was no party. So since he acknowledges the ministerial code applies to him, will he now resign? No, Mr Speaker. Uh, but, you know, uh, since, he asked, since, he asked, since he asked about about COVID restrictions, uh, let me just remind the House and indeed remind uh, the country that he has been relentlessly opportunistic uh, throughout. Uh, he has flip-flopped from one side uh, to the other. Uh, he, would have kept us, he would have kept us in lockdown in the summer, Mr Speaker. He would have taken us back into lockdown uh, at Christmas, Mr Speaker. And it's precisely because we didn't listen to Captain Hindsight uh, that we have the fastest-growing economy in the G7, Mr Speaker. Asked by Sir Keir Starmer if he will release the Sue Gray report into Downing Street parties in full, he didn't appear to explicitly commit. 
we've got to leave the report to the independent uh, investigator, as he knows. Uh, and of course, uh, when I receive it, I, of course, I will do exactly uh, what I said. He hit back at Labour, saying that he knows that a Tory government can be trusted to deliver. Crime down 10%, Mr Speaker. Job vacancies at a record high. Colossal investment. In, yes, Mr Speaker. We're delivering and they have no plan. Three times as much tech investment as France in this country, twice as much as Germany. We have a vision for this country as the most, as the most prosperous and successful economy in Europe because we are going to unite and level up. The problem with the Labour Party today, Mr Speaker, is that he's a lawyer, not a leader. The Sue Gray report could prove very damaging for the Prime Minister. The ex-pub landlady, who was once described as the most powerful person you've never heard of, could be about to become the most famous civil servant in UK history. Jane Worrell, NGD News, London. So pressure on Johnson reaches new heights this week. Will he stay or will he go is the question on everyone's lips. Let's take a quick look at how we got here. NTD's Lee Hall has more from our London newsroom. There's allegations of up to 20 illicit gatherings on government property. Of course, Boris Johnson didn't attend them all. The first was in May 2020, when people were only allowed to meet one other person outdoors. A photo released by The Guardian shows the Prime Minister, his wife and at least 16 others enjoying cheese and wine in the Downing Street Garden on the 15th of May. Sitting opposite is Dominic Cummings, who wrote on his blog that the photo did not show a party, but he then pointed to another event five days later. On the 20th of May, over 100 Downing Street staff were allegedly invited to bring your own booze to the Number 10 garden by Johnson's principal private secretary. Johnson attended this one. He since apologised and told the Commons he believed it was a work event that fell within the guidance. In June 2020, there were two birthday events, one a surprise gathering organised by his wife while indoor socialising was banned. Number 10 said Johnson attended it for less than 10 minutes. Allegations list three more parties in November 2020, two of which Johnson is said to have attended. December 2020 was the big month, with allegations of 10 different events at separate government buildings taking place whilst the nation was under lockdown. Fast forward to March 2021, when Home Office officials are said to have gathered and drank Prosecco in their office. And finally, one of the most damaging stories emerged regarding April last year, when a couple of parties were held on the eve of Prince Philip's funeral, prompting Johnson to apologise to the Queen. Greek police are looking into the cause of an explosion this morning in Athens. One person was injured and buildings were extensively damaged. A fire followed the blast in the building along a major road that links the city centre to the southern suburbs. NTD's Lily Joe has more. Sirens, smoke and flames early on Wednesday from a building in central Athens, not long after an explosion was heard. This video was shared by an eyewitness who described being woken in her apartment a block away after her windows shattered. A fire brigade commander at the scene said 18 firefighters used seven engines to battle the blaze. Once the flames were out, the severe damage to the building and buildings nearby can be seen. 
Officials say one person has suffered burns and was taken to hospital. An investigation is underway into what triggered the blast and the fire. Debris all over the street still lined with snow from the snowstorm on Monday. Broken glass from blown out windows littering the pavements. This man was driving his taxi in the street directly across from the explosion as it happened. He said he was alone on the road but had a passenger with him in the car. The force of the blast pushed the taxi two lanes to the right and smashed its windows into the vehicle. Police say the blast reached a 200-meter radius. They're looking into a possible gas leak. Lily Zhou, NTD News. Denmark will soon lift all COVID-19 restrictions within the country. The Prime Minister made the announcement today, adding that the CCP virus should no longer be categorized as a socially critical sickness. The country will be completely open from February 1st. The Danish Prime Minister said she expected spring, summer and early autumn to be an open Denmark with hugs, parties and festivals. The government says it expects another season of increased infections during the colder months, which may require additional vaccinations. And it's not ruling out the possibility that a fourth shot could be necessary for everyone. Denmark's health minister recommended that some testing upon entry to the country is the only pandemic restriction that should remain. And that the testing will primarily apply to those who have not been vaccinated or previously infected. And up next, an unfinished Michelangelo marble statue was recently restored for the first time in around 470 years. The Renaissance master had hoped it would be an altar for his tomb. And humankind is one step closer to making nuclear fusion a viable source of energy. Scientists say they've reached a milestone. That and more after the break on NTD News. U.S. government scientists said on Wednesday they've taken an important step in the long trek toward making nuclear fusion, the very process that powers stars, a viable energy source for humankind. Here are the details. Humankind is one step closer to making nuclear fusion, the very process that powers stars, a viable energy source. I think this is a very exciting time. People have been working on, on fusion for many decades, and, and this is literally decades in, in the making. U.S. government scientists have announced hitting a huge milestone called, quote, a burning plasma, which marks a step toward self-sustaining nuclear fusion energy. Alex Zolstra is an experimental physicist at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Yeah, so we uh, are publishing findings that for the first time we've been able to create what we call a burning plasma in the laboratory. Burning plasma is related to fusion energy research and it's a, a system in which the fuel is mostly heating itself. In the past, we've always had to provide external heating to the fuel to get it hot, but now the fusion is actually doing most of the work for us. Using the world's largest laser, the researchers coaxed fusion fuel for the first time to heat itself beyond the heat they zapped into it. The energy they produced was modest, about the equivalent of nine 9-volt batteries. But the experiments represent a big step in the decades-long quest. The scientists cautioned that years of more work are needed. 
from there, the next step is actually we want to try to get to the point where the fuel is heating itself so fast that it can overcome mechanisms that reduce the temperature of the fuel. That would be what we would call ignition. Beyond there, uh, we still need to show that we can produce more energy from fusion than we take to actually start the experiment. Unlike burning fossil fuels or the fission process of existing nuclear power plants, fusion offers the prospect of abundant energy without pollution. Zulstra is encouraged by the progress. Yeah, there's many milestones that are being reported in the last few years. It, it's uh, quite an exciting time for, for fusion. And I think it's also important to note that this, uh, you know, this particular milestone that we're reporting now is, is exciting because it's the first time that we're able to study how the fusion fuel behaves under these sorts of conditions. And that's key for building our understanding to, to guide the path forward. Visitors to a museum in Florence have been getting up close and personal with the restoration of a famous statue by Michelangelo. The Renaissance master had hoped to make it an altar for his tomb. Experts recently finished restoring it for the first time in around 470 years. NTD's Neil Woodrow brings us more details. Restorers in Florence worked for nearly two years to bring a Michelangelo statue known as Bandini Pietà back to life. Michelangelo was in his 70s when he started working on this sculpture, but he left it unfinished. The word Pietà is a name given to subjects that show the Virgin Mary with the Christ taken down from the cross. The director of the restoration project comments on the personal nature of the work. It's a Pietà that has suffered and is very intimate. There is definitely a strong feeling of Michelangelo because it was made for his tomb. So yes, it is a very personal statue and, in fact, among other things, there's a self-portrait of Michelangelo in the figure of Nicodemus. Michelangelo worked on it in Rome between the years 1547 to 1555. The restorers said that the Pietà was carved from a marble block that had numerous minute cracks, especially on the base. This could have been why Michelangelo abandoned it. The marble also contained traces of pyrite, a sulfide mineral which would have caused sparks of marble to chip off when he hit with a chisel. After Michelangelo's death, his friend, Florentine sculptor Tiberio Calcani, restored the sculpture. The Pieta had all the signs of fractures and of parts that had previously fallen off and had been reassembled by Calgagni. However, it is quite unlikely that Michelangelo tried to destroy the statue because no trace or signs of this have been found. The sculpture has been at the Florence Museum since 1981. We started the restoration in 2019 with the removal of surface deposits, then cleaned it with hot water, cotton swabs with slightly warmed water, to remove the surface dirt that had materialized from previous maintenance on the statue. The entire restoration process was open for the public to see. It was really interesting. The visitors were very interested and asked many questions about what we were doing, what products we used, so the public were involved. To allow them to view such an important work in a museum as important as ours, but also to learn about the methods and the restoration techniques. Restorers discovered the marble used came from the Medici quarries in Serravezza, not nearby Carrara, where he had obtained marble for some of his most famous statues. Neil Woodrow, 
NTD News. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.